If you're not reaching your financial potential, you're going it alone as a solopreneur, or you're lacking fulfillment and meaning in your life, then this podcast is for you. In each and every episode, Rock helps you create breakthroughs and results so you can live life on your terms. So get ready to unleash more money, time, and magic in your life. Here's your host, Rock Thomas. I want to start this week's episode by saying thank you for making my podcast part of your routine. There are thousands of podcasts out there that you could listen to. So the fact that you choose one that has me as your coach and mentor is an honor for me. So as an invitation today, I wanted to uh, extend the possibility for you to jump on a call with somebody on my team at rockthomas.com forward slash VIP call. Because if you like my philosophies and you're ready to join a group of people who are growing and taking action toward financial freedom and fulfillment, then it means that you don't have to do it alone. And it's such a drag doing it alone. It's so much harder doing it alone. It's like swimming upstream. So will you take the next step? Can I entice you to say yes and figure it out later by jumping on a call and finding out what's missing and what is a better strategy and tactic? So go ahead rockthomas.com forward slash VIP call, and let's help you fast track towards success. All right, this next interview, you are in for an absolute delightful treat. Sam Karashi is a writer, he's an entrepreneur, he's an Instagrammer and a YouTuber. He's worked as a psychiatric resident in an addicted hospital throughout that time. He had the opportunity to help over 10,000 patients. It's a really fascinating conversation on overcoming trauma. He's worked with some of the coolest people and interviewed the Iceman, the Horse Whisperer, uh, a samurai, a cold reader, a ninja, a tea master, a pickpocketer to get insights on fear. And, you know, get your pen and paper ready because there's so many uh, nuances and there are some um, practices that you can use in order to loosen up this hold that emotions have on us. I'm really, really excited to share this with you. I'm going to have Sam back for sure. We, um, we went a little longer than I normally do because I loved uh, the conversation. So uh, get yourself ready. You are in for a treat. What a delight to have you here, Sam. I'm looking forward to our conversation. It's a pleasure to be here, Rock. Thank you. So you have a very... Um, storied, interesting background. You've interviewed some very fascinating people and you've worked with um, people in addiction, all kinds of different interesting stuff, as well as being, you know, heavily on social media. So I'm kind of like, where do we start? So why don't we start with, um, you know, the background of where you grew up and how you got into, you know, the field you're in today? Well, I, I grew up in Saudi. I mean, I was born in Syria, moved to Saudi three months later, spent a few years. My, my dad was a the Saudi ambassador in Sudan, so we moved there for about a year and a half. Then I came back to Saudi. And since then, from kindergarten all the way to the university, to medical school, I lived in Saudi my entire life, um, up until working in an addiction hospital for about seven years. Um, so the entire period of time was in Saudi, in the city of Jeddah. And it was, it, was an, it was an interesting experience in terms of growing up here because I did travel during vacation time, you know, during summer vacations to the UK because we have an apartment there, we have a house there. So I would go there. We would travel to different countries as well. Um, 
and it was, yeah, it was pleasant, peaceful, loving. I grew up in a very nurturing household. Um, I had my, I was, well, I have two half sisters, two sisters and a brother, but at that point, the, you know, the youngest was 15 years older than I am. And they were all in universities around the world. So it was just me and my mom and my dad. So um, it seemed like a lonely, ch an only child, but that wasn't the case because whenever, you know, my brother and sisters uh, come back, I get a chance to spend time with them. And I always looked up to them. Um, I was very, I was nurtured by my mom, my dad, my sisters and my brother. And it was, it was a very loving um, childhood, very nurtured childhood. Um, I never wanted to be a medical professional. That was the last thing on my mind. I, um, after high school, I didn't really know what I wanted. My dad wanted me to be a doctor and I was like, I really don't want to do that. Um, but yeah, they kind of convinced me to step into it. And as I continued after the first year to just try it out, I fell in love with it. Um, which was interesting because I was very, very resistant extremely resistant to the degree that I wanted to uh, compromise my grades. I just, I just, I didn't study. I just wanted to prove to my parents, like, this isn't for me. And that was the first time I compromised my standards, which was very interesting. And then that kind of shook me because when I saw the results, I never scored that low on any test and it was biology. I remember, I think it was 15 out of 40 and I did that on purpose, but it just felt bad for me. So I just wanted to, uh, it kind of woke me up. And then I was like, let me give this a proper shot. And I did, and I enjoyed it and I loved it. I just fell in love with the idea, the human body and the beauty of it. And so that's what kept me going. So there's a lot to unpack there. I got a, a few questions for you. Um, <clears throat> know this relationship between our parents. They say that we, up until the age of 12, at least, we're really just trying to get our parents' attention one way or the other. Um, you know, negative, positive, what have you. And for the rest of our life, after that, we're trying to get our spouse's attention, <laughs> right? Some, yeah. form, some form of acknowledgement and recognition and connection and all that sort of thing. Um, so I want to combine these two questions is what was it like growing up in Saudi that myself as a comedian slash North American would not typically know? And how was that dynamic in your childhood? And, you know, your father wanted you to become a, a doctor and you became, right? Um, and so how, how impactful is it what our parents are suggesting in our environment? So... Saudi environment, family environment, Sam. So Saudi environment, I'm, I'm, I mean, for a very long time, a lot of people, I've, I've heard this over the years. I mean, I, I was born in the 70s, and so I grew up in the 80s and 90s um, between Saudi and London, usually, back and forth. And to... To a lot of people in the West, they perceive Saudi as a desert. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that isn't true. And I'm sure now that it's opening up, especially in the last couple of years with all the changes that are happening, people are now becoming more and more familiar, more aware, obviously with, the, with social media, the internet, you're seeing more of what's happening. Yes, we do have deserts, but 
we have a lot more. It's, it's a normal life minus a few things, a few restrictions that isn't available here. So we don't have bars. We, you know, we didn't have cinemas, by the way, for a very long time, which is one of the reasons, one of the highlights for me as a kid going to the UK is going to the cinema. Uh, and I, I love movies. Um, yeah, I'm passionate about movies. And um, I think that's one of the reasons because we didn't have that. So in a way, may, scarcity may actually be a trigger to passion. Sometimes if you don't have something, you appreciate, you overappreciate it. And you, you're more than someone that has it that would take it for granted. So that's probably one of the reasons for the birth of loving movies and having developing that passion. So that's an example. Um, we we didn't have we did have theme parks but they weren't as extravagant as like alton towers in the uk or you know uh but we did have theme parks we did have malls actually we have ex an excessive amount of malls so there's a lot of walking a lot of shopping a lot of um but yeah there are things we don't have so mainly the clubs and obviously there's no alcohol uh, because there are no bars <laughs> I'm trying to what, what kind of what kind of addiction therapy were you doing? Because if if there's no bars and there's very little I mean there is alcohol, but it's very hard to get to. And if you're found with it, the consequences are very severe. Yes? Yes, absolutely. The yeah, you have the rules here um are very harsh when it comes to using drugs or selling drugs, but mainly selling more than using, obviously, um, because the person is then hooked in terms of drugs a lot of people over the years would tell me okay so if alcohol is banned how come you have a lot of alcoholics in the addiction hospital that you were working in for example how does that work and my answer is you know alcohol is banned here and despite that we do have a lot of alcoholics but opiates are not necessarily something that is over the counter there and there are certain drugs around the world that are banned, and yet you do have people in excess that are addicted to it. It's either it's illegal, obviously, you're either smuggling it or you're manufacturing it, which is the case with all drugs or most drugs around the world, including Saudi Arabia. So what do people use in replacement of alcohol? Because people need ways to cope with their pain and with their, um, you know, their suffering. And alcohol is very common around the globe. So what do people go to in Saudi Arabia? To calm themselves down in terms, are we talking about stress or are we talking about, are we talking about life? Yeah, just as a replacement or when you go out to dinner instead of having a cocktail, what is that like? People are like, yes, uh, I'll have sparkling water, like, you know? Well, what's interesting is we, because we don't have it, we don't look at it as a replacement as let's use this as a replacement to something, but I guess for, yeah, for anyone that has alcohol in their lifestyle or around them, you, if you're not going to have that, it feels like whatever you're going to have is a substitute, but we don't have that concept in and of itself. So we're not really looking for a substitute to it. And in terms of um, something to calm ourselves, well, there's a lot of hobbies, uh, connection. Uh, in our culture, connection is very, very strong. Family, friends, extremely strong. Um, and so I think that would be something that people do bonding, bonding, social bonding is very, very important here. And obviously, it's, you know, very well documented, the power of 
social connection in lowering uh, the risk of depression and boosting confidence, self-esteem. Granted, it's the it's the right kind of connection. I have to highlight that because yeah. not all connection is healthy. Uh, not all peers are healthy. There are peers that can actually be worse than drugs, in my opinion. But that's a different conversation. Yeah, but yeah. So when people do get together, do people smoke in that part of the world? People do smoke. I would say maybe one. Yeah, I, I wouldn't know the statistics at the moment. But yeah, people do smoke. Obviously, around the world, smoking has reduced because yeah. of yeah the new movement, thankfully, right. which is great. So but yeah, people do smoke here. So tell us a little bit about working in, a, in an addiction hospital and what that's like and, and how does somebody, because often people get into that when they've had an addiction because of the pain of the experience, they want to you know, be able to help people through that. How did you get into it? Interestingly enough, I wanted to uh, be a plastic surgeon and I took in my internship here plastic surgery. There are multiple reasons why I walked away from that personally. Um, but I wanted to take a break for about a year. So I wanted to do something different because I did, I was fascinated by the mind. And the closest thing to psychology and medicine was psychiatry. And the one hospital and, and the one hospital that I wanted to work with to work in was the addiction hospital because that's like an extreme. Because it, it gives you addiction, but it gives you substance-induced disorders. So I can actually learn about schizophrenia through substance-induced psychotic disorders, psychosis that has, that has been induced by the drug, depression that has been induced by the drug. So it's an extreme, but it really gives me a crash course. So I wanted to do that for a year and check it out and then move on from it. But it ended up going for seven years, um, which, which was interesting. And throughout those seven years, I started to realize as I'm going through it that there are a lot of flaws in the system. I wasn't really happy with the, um, the way, I guess, in that system, mental illness was approached. Uh, we were understaffed. Uh, we didn't get a chance to spend as much time with the patients. And I thought it was really important to spend time with the patients. And I realized that the people I helped during that period of time, benefited more from the time I gave them than the drugs I offered, than the medication I offered. And I thought that was really interesting to have that attention. The other thing I noticed is, and this is not an actual statistic, but this is from my experience. I've seen over 10,000 patients. Almost over 95% of the patients I've seen came from broken homes. Wow. So there was a problem in terms of, there was a parental problem yeah. which was really interesting. And I think maybe on, on, on an unconscious level, and I've never thought of this before until we just had this conversation and you were asking me about my childhood. And I think maybe there was an unconscious trigger to want to resolve this and help people because I, I, I noticed what they didn't have that I did mm -hmm. in that period of time, in that moment. I didn't even make that connection until now as I'm thinking about it. So it created a drive yeah. for me to try to find a better way. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why I walked away from psychiatry, from medicine, because 
there was a lack of integrity if I continued because I, I, I wasn't a hundred percent happy with the, what I was offering. I would minimize the number, the amount of medication that I was offering because there's no need to give them more for three months or six months. If I can give it in a shorter period of time to get the results and about three to four weeks, any substance induced disorder can be reversed based on my experience. So there's no need to offer it for three to four or six months. But there was a lot of resistance to that. And I felt like I want to offer more. I want to find a better way. I want to find an alternative solution. So I decided to walk away. And I personally believe in education over medication because when you give them attention and when you develop or you allow them to develop awareness through that connection, awareness is the first step to change. The moment you are aware of what's wrong, you can make it right. The moment you are aware of what needs to change, now you have the power to change it. But as long as you do not, you do not know, you're going to be stuck. You're going to be paralyzed. And that's, that's why I left. Because I believe in education over uh, medication. I believe in prevention over treatment. Why don't we prevent? Why don't we find a way to prevent? Why can't we teach children mental resilience or emotional resilience and i tried to unravel that and that's why i started interviewing unorthodox psychologists i like to call them and i just went on this yeah. quest for mind research yeah yeah beautiful thank you was, there's just so many nuggets in that i mean you're gonna have to re-listen to this because there's a lot of insights in what you're saying um a couple of questions on that because as I, <clears throat> my mother was dating an alcoholic for a while. And so I started to develop a, um, an observation of the type of people that had that pattern. And so you say 95% of them came from a broken home, which totally makes sense. Because I think one of the things that humans suffer from the most is a lack of sense of belonging. And that's something you mentioned at the beginning that you guys have that's very strong in your community in Saudi. Um, one of the happiest feelings I know I have is when I'm amongst friends or colleagues or a tribe or a peer group, and I feel like I, I fit in, but I also stand out, which maybe sounds counterintuitive, but it means that you have a place in the tribe, right? Yes. Um, if you're on a sport team, you have your role to play, you're part of the team, but they're dependent on your performance in that role, even though you don't have to perform all the time. So would you say also that, you know, this resilience you just mentioned, I found that the people that tended to be alcoholics lacked resilience. They were what I call very sensitive. They, they took things personally. They had trouble dealing with adversity. And so they, they seemed to have that general predisposition. What are your thoughts around that? I mean, if we look at addiction in general, or we look at mental illness in general, um, it's linked to emotional wounds. There's an emotional wound that has never been healed. The cause of the emotional wound may vary, but it usually boils down to fear. Either fear of something happening or fear of something happening again. And people that are constantly anxious, there's a sense of threat. And I guess the sense of threat 
cannot happen without an existing trauma of something they did not expect. And one of the most painful traumas is traumas linked to parents. Because if that trust is broken, if there's a violation of that trust, if there is an abandonment, a betrayal at that deep or at, at that level, it's so deep um, that it makes it hard to trust anyone else. How can you get over? How can you try? How can you succeed in trusting anyone when the person you expected to trust the most, beyond anyone, has broken that trust? So it, that's not to say that that has happened to everyone, but it has happened to a lot of people. And it, and you people spend people can spend their entire life trying to get over that, trying to regain the trust. What needs to happen for that to happen is for the emotional wound, the emotional impact of that trauma, of that trust being broken, to be healed. And that's when the, tr the potential for trusting other people can happen. We can't trust if we're constantly living in threat, if we're living in fear, if we're constantly worried about that, anxious about that. That, that sense of threat is primary, is, is essential. It is, if we don't feel safe, we cannot function optimally. We cannot be as effective as we want in any interaction. We cannot be as productive in any activity. We cannot enjoy any experience. We're constantly distracted. It's like ask the moment a trauma happens is like a gun being placed, you know, a gun put to your head and that's it. And you're, you're gonna have that gun aimed at your head for the rest of your life until you figure out a way to resolve that. And people don't see it. It's like an invisible gun now. And you're asked to trust people. You're asked to be successful in a relationship, to connect with people on a deeper level, to be very effective and succeed in your goals, to, to enjoy life. But people aren't seeing that invisible gun. And either people don't know it exists or they know it exists, but they're trying to ignore it because they don't know what to do about it. But it all boils down into that sense of safety that we need to regain but it, it operates, we need to focus on producing a sense of safety while healing and processing the unhealed emotional wounds that are making it hard for us to feel safe. So these are the two aspects that need to be worked on in general. So many people live their entire life not being aware that they're using Band-Aids, masks, and what have you to cope with, with that, what I call the loss of innocence, right? Um, yes. It happened so early for many people. Um, my parents were physically there, but emotionally absent. And so there was this sense of, um, you know, not, not being seen. And yeah. I remember doing this one exercise at an event with um, Lisa, I forget her name right now, but anyway, she had, had people stand up, get in pairs. One person closed their eyes, A, B, 200 people. And B would walk around and whisper randomly into different people's ears what they wish they had heard from their parents. And you could just hear half the room crying because it was so for me, and I didn't realize this, I just I just um, started whispering into people's ear, ears, there you are. Oh, there you are. Because I, I never felt being seen. And even later in my life as an adult, I would come home, say, visit my parents. And they were, you know, like you go to some families 
and you open the door and the family gets up. They're like, oh my God, Sam's here, Sam, right? And my family was, they were busy, they were working, they were cooking, they would barely turn, right? You were bothering them almost. So you'd come in and they, you would talk to their back for a minute or two and you didn't feel seen. So those, there's many people that don't realize that they have those wounds and they develop all these ways of dealing with it. With your work now and after all of the interviews you've done, what is a way that you you know you can help people first become aware and second what are some of the things you do to work with them to help them heal those wounds so in terms of what you were saying the two words that i wrote down um attention and celebration celebration is a form of attention um in a positive way because attention can be negative or positive and that's one of the reasons why in relationships people don't um you can have someone in an abusive relationship that stays there because of the attention. It doesn't matter if it's negative or positive. Attention is better than no attention. Right. Attention means lack of abandonment. Um, even though it's a painful, it could be a very painful. So the thing I would say in terms of that, I mean, there's, there's a lot of lessons I learned about fear from different experts, like the top pickpocket in the UK who stole my phone, um, during the interview three times in the first five minutes, which was an amazing experience in attention management. Speaking of attention, he's a master of attention management. Um, and uh, the samurai as well, they're, they're, and the Iceman, Wim Hof. So there are different experts, and I kept on asking about fear. And the three things that come to mind, and I'll share the story that I had with the pickpocket because it talks about something really important about the way our relationship with fear, because it's really about the relationship we have to the emotion, not the emotion. It's really about the relationship we have with the situation, not the situation itself. One of my mentors was talking about the idea of time management. And he said, time management is a ridiculous concept in and of itself. Um, we trying to manage something that is happening with or without your permission, with or without your consent, with or without your control, it's happening regardless. And it's better to focus on self-management rather than time management. We may not be able to manage time, but we can manage ourselves within time. And that's really, really important. Um, awareness is the key in order for us to start to heal. And the idea of impermanence, which I will get back to, but I'm just trying to, because there's a lot to unpack, but I'm just trying to pick at least three concepts. So the pickpocket, uh, one of the things I asked him about is, what are your thoughts on fear? And he said, I believe that fear lives in the future. And I asked him, what do you mean? He said, think about it. If you hear gunshots outside your home, you're not afraid of the gunshots you're afraid of the gunman coming into your home. And if they're already in your home, you're no longer afraid of them being in your home. You're afraid of them shooting you. And if they're shooting you, you're no longer afraid of them shooting, you're afraid of the shots. So in a way, what he was saying is fear is a never ending mirage that you keep chasing that never comes to fruition. And after he left, I just sat there just trying to digest that piece of information because that was a mind blowing interview in and of itself. And I actually have it recorded. I may want to ask him for permission to have part of my podcast at some point. But um, I was thinking of this and, and I thought if fear lives in the future, 
when the future doesn't exist, then fear lives in a dimension that doesn't exist. And to me, that just blew my mind. We are constantly fearing something that doesn't exist. The other thing related to fear is it's not the fear. It's not the object that we fear. It's always the consequence of the object, of the interaction with the object. So it's not the spider that we fear. It's the consequence of being bitten by the spider. So sometimes we need to really go down that rabbit hole to understand what's the consequence that I fear. That is a better question. You can ask yourself, what do I fear? And you have that list. And then you grab these objects, these items on the list and ask yourself, what's the consequence or what are the consequences that I fear about this? And then you develop awareness related to that. So that's regarding fear. There's, I mean, we could really go down the rabbit hole of fear, but that's like a quick kind of snapshot of that. The second is impermanence. You talked about the idea of not being seen. What I was thinking of as well in terms of addiction, in terms of mental illness is hopelessness and helplessness. Those two are key factors in depression, but they're also key factors in general. If I feel hopeless, that means there is no way out. And if I feel helpless, then there is no hope. They feed each other. Hopelessness feeds helplessness and helplessness feeds hopelessness. Now, hopelessness, the antidote to hopelessness is impermanence. The antidote to helplessness is resourcefulness. So the more resourceful you are, the less likely you are to be helpless. And it's about demonstrating an example of resourcefulness is becoming more flexible, accepting, aware, but also focusing on trying to control what you can. Because most people are trying to, trying to control something they can't. They're trying to control time. They're trying to control people. They're trying to control natural disasters. They're trying to control technology. They're trying to control outcomes. You, you can't really control the outcome. You can try your best to move towards an outcome, be, be open to moving away from it if better opportunities present themselves. And we need to learn to focus on controlling what we can. So a good question to ask is, what am I trying to control right now? And what that will do is it will allow you to come up with answers that reveal to you that you're probably trying to control something you can't. And so the other question would be, what can I control? And now you can start focusing on the things you can control. You can control the, what, the pictures in your mind. You can control what you say to yourself. You can control your decisions. You can control your actions, the way you breathe, the way you move. There's a lot that you can control. And that allows you to develop competence, physiological competence as well, if it's just about movement and breathing. But what it does is it suggests to the unconscious mind that you are resourceful, which counters helplessness. So that's helplessness. Hopelessness, you could also think of hopelessness, when I, when I said the counter to that, to counter hopelessness is impermanence. The thing about hopelessness is you're believing that what you are in 
is forever. It's the per, it's the fear of the permanence of the situation that creates the hopelessness. If you believe that this is not going to last, there's no way that hope not, is not going to exist. So it's really about reminding ourselves that this situation is not going to last. Some of the most painful experiences in my life, I've persevered because I kept on reminding myself, this is not going to last. This is temporary. And as long as you remind yourself that something is temporary, automatically, that's a great incantation. That's a great affirmation or slash incantation because it's true. Because one of the most, the one of the things that are the concepts that are constant is change is inevitable. And if change is inevitable, then nothing is permanent. Everything is temporary. And so that's a powerful thing to kind of mantra to remind yourself to break out of hopelessness. The last thing I would say is awareness in terms of emotions. So we need to be aware of what we are feeling. So one of the things to begin the process of healing ourselves from our wounds is we need to address how we feel. The emotional impact of how we felt is not going to go away if we don't process it. And there are different ways of processing it. But one thing that is very powerful for people is that would be writing down or expressing out loud how you feel. As simple as that is, there has been a study, I think it's in UC, it was in UCLA, about how expressing how you feel in writing, expressing anger specifically, um, allows the, the areas in the brain that processes emotion to be activated and lowers the activity of the amygdala, which is evidence that just processing how you feel just by expressing it a lot of people don't even want to say out loud how they feel about something because they might feel ashamed of saying it out loud the truth is what keeps emotions alive is suppressing them that's the only thing keeping them alive if you express them they're gone the brain can process that now that doesn't mean that a trauma can be released like that but it initiates the process and it begins to chip away and it would help. Um, one of my mentors was saying, was telling me, emotions that are buried alive never die. And a lot of people bury their emotions alive, expecting it to disappear, but they're going to keep on trying to dig their way out. And life will throw at you situations to give you the opportunity to release what was never meant to remain inside of you over and over and over. And that's one of the beautiful aspects of relationships. Every time we are triggered, not just in a relationship in general, every trigger to me, and this is, as I was thinking of this uh, interview today, um, this quote came to me because I was thinking of ways of connecting triggering with emotions. A trigger is a reflection. When you are triggered, it's a moment where you are, are looking at a mirror that is reflecting something you need to work on. And so in marriage, in relationships in general, regardless if it was marriage or not, but in relationships in general, every, both parties are raising a mirror, revealing to the other person the wounds that they have not healed that they need to work on. So if you are triggered, thanks to your partner, that trigger is a way to, to help you become more aware of what you need to work on, a wound that you haven't healed, thanks to them. 
And that's not just a way to reframe it, but it's the truth in, in the way you perceive it, because we're not meant to be triggered, to live our lives constantly being triggered. The problem is we focus on managing the trigger. So where a lot of people and a lot of disciplines focus on trigger management rather than emotional healing and emotional processing. The trigger will go away once you process the emotional impact and therefore there is no trigger. But instead we attack people, we criticize people, we beg people to stop, we isolate ourselves from people, we suppress, but we're just managing people around the trigger. We're managing the trigger. We don't want people to press that button. How about doing something to eliminate the button itself? And so I would recommend either saying out loud, and you don't have to say it to anybody. You could say it to yourself. You could say it out loud. It doesn't have to be in front of a mirror. But saying out loud the things that you feel ashamed or the things that you're uncomfortable with in terms of how you feel can help release. Writing it down serves a different kind of purpose. But what you are doing is you're creating a connection with your unconscious mind because you're constantly acknowledging the existence of these emotions. You are accepting their existence. Whenever we suppress the emotions, we are resisting their existence. We are rejecting, denying that they exist. The moment you are expressing, you are accepting their existence. That's the first step to let it out, and it's going to begin to be released. So I would recommend writing, uh, for example, let's say, think of anything that bothers you, whatever it is, not now, <laughs> but anyone, I mean, anytime, anyone who's listening, I just think of something. I can give you an example. Okay. Maybe you can use this as a test. It happened, it happened to me this morning. So um, I'm sharing with my lady um, something that happened. And I was looking for an alliance. Uh, oh, my God, really? Some sort of response like that. Um, and as you're talking, I'm thinking, I didn't get a lot of that growing up. There was a lot of separation. There was a lot of seven kids. There was a lot of, you know, you do your thing and you mentioned somebody, somebody ridiculed you, bullied you, laughed at you. So that sense of connection was lacking. So I think I look for it today. Yeah. So I'm sharing with her an incident. And then she, rather than go, oh my God, that must be difficult or that was nice or whatever that I was looking for, she coached me. And was like, oh, well, you should do this, or you should have done that, or you could have done this, or I don't remember the exact. And I immediately felt this separation and this desire to not share. And I, you know, the trigger. And so I was like, you know what, fine, I, I don't need to share. I just, I'll do my stuff, I'll do what I do, and, and I won't even share anymore because I keep on getting directed or corrected or given a suggestion or told I could have done it a better way. And I don't want that, reminds me of my father. So the, the trigger is, you know, being corrected or directed. And the wound, I think, would be the desire for connection. So I don't know if that gives you a context of what emotion could I express to myself maybe in that time um, that could create a healing. Well, what I would, I mean, if, if you'd like to do this right now, we can do this, or I would just recommend thinking of when I think about this morning, when my wife or girlfriend basically said this or didn't say that to me, I can feel and keep saying that sentence. I can feel and whatever comes up because I can feel ashamed 
what else? I can feel embarrassed. What else? I can feel. You don't have to say what else, but right. in your mind, but you just keep on saying, I can feel, I can feel, I can feel. Or, yeah, you could just keep, you could just do that. I can feel, I can feel, I can feel, and keep saying that. Here's why this is important to use the whole sentence. You're retraining yourself to express how you feel without addressing what you think, without addressing thought. A lot of therapies linked to in emotional regulation, thinking about thought and the belief and, and what's the, and anal analyzing it. And, but I just want to focus on emotions because we spend a lot of time journaling what we think instead of journaling how we feel. And so this is live in terms of, I can feel this, I can feel this, I can feel this and keep doing that until it's done. And you're doing it on your own. So you don't have to worry about anybody else seeing it. Right. You're expressing it out loud. And what's interesting is when you do that, sometimes, and I'm sharing this with you now, and hopefully the listeners and viewers would also uh, relate to this. When you're doing this, you might have the tendency to say, I can feel, let's say, jealous or resentful or angry, which is perfectly fine. Whatever you're feeling doesn't matter. And I think an important thing to mention here is how you feel is everything. Why you feel doesn't matter. How you feel is everything. Okay, so why you feel doesn't matter. How you feel is everything. Um, a lot of people are caught up in the why. So what you might notice is you're going to be saying, I can feel resentful or angry. You can say, I can feel angry. And then you'd, you'd feel the need to go down that rabbit hole. Because when she said that in the past or when that person did this, and you get caught up in something that doesn't matter. Because why doesn't matter? how you feel is everything. It's all about expressing how you feel. The analysis, when we get caught up in the analysis of emotions, when we have certain dreams, when our minds keep keeps bringing up certain things, it's an attempt to reach a resolution. Analysis is our conscious attempt to reach a resolution. The resolution can easily be reached by just expressing the emotion, but we keep on going around in circles. So one, you may say, I can feel resentful, and then you'd want, or I feel angry, and then you'd want to go down, why? Don't do that. You can say, I can feel, uh, let's say, angry towards myself. You don't need to direct it towards anybody. It's an emotion you're feeling. It doesn't have to be towards her, towards yourself, or towards your father, towards anyone. You can say, I can feel angry, a little angry. You don't have to measure it. Just say it as it is, angry. You don't have to downplay it. And you don't have to also send, not censor it, but try to trim it down. You, if you feel like saying, I feel angry, I feel, I can feel resentful. I can feel enraged. I can feel furious. There's nothing wrong with that. I know it seems like they're different synonyms to anger, but they're not. They're different ways of expressing layers of emotions that you've had. Say everything, but in that sentence to keep it contained if that makes sense and notice what happens and this is a healthy exercise for anybody to do and it's such a simple it's a micro processing tool for emotions mm -hmm. um, you can wow. use it to chip away at previous traumas you can use it to 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 basically release what you have in this moment and something i would recommend after that is to do a five exaggerated breath or five take five exaggerated breaths in through the nose and out the mouth so an example would be Five times. You can even go to seven if you want. Seven is a good number too. And that's it. And that's a bookend to close what you did. 
And then you could close your eyes, relax for a few, for a minute or for 30 seconds and move on and notice what that does. I love it. Sam, I, I feel like I've got to have you back on the show. Um, I feel like we're just getting started and we're already past the usual wrapping. Um, I've got a page full of notes. I'm going to myself listen to this. And uh, I really appreciate your, um, your attention to the, the nuances of this space. Because it's so easy in this space to have these global kind of strategies and, you know, do your incantations or do your affirmations or have a vision board. And then there's no connectivity to the emotional experience. And there's a lack of integrity between the connections. And so um, I really just want to um, honor you for that. Thank you so much. That's very kind of you to say. I deeply appreciate what you said, Rock. And I love what you said about nuances because new, in the same way they talk about the, the devils and the details, the powers and the nuances. Yeah. Really, I mean, we can get lost in something general, but let's get to the yeah. nitty gritty and the nuances of how to tweak. That's how people master things. A difference yeah. between a student and a master is nuances. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And I like what you said. It's like it's a it's a micro technique to chip away at trauma. And I think people, you know, the cliche of 1% better and different things like that. I know for myself, when I've gotten really good at something, it's because for a week or two, I focused on one little micro technique. It could be golfing where you focus for two weeks just on your grip on the club. And then you kind of get that to a point that you're most confident and most effective, and then you can focus on the next thing. And so I've done that with businesses and um, you know, I had my kids, for instance, learn how to speed type. And I taught them to type the four agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, the summary of it, but I would have them do it and I have a chart on the wall in a competition between the four kids and chart you know, how long it took them to do it. So it started at 14 minutes and slowly moved its way down. The goal was to do it in four minutes, which equated about 80 minutes of typing. And sometimes I would do it with, uh, uh, I would blindfold them. Uh, other times I would just come and I would move my hands in front like this and distract them, push them on the shoulder. And I was creating this resilience for them to have this relationship with the keypad. Um, but to me, those were all micro trainings. And today they, um, you know, it, they, it bothered them, but today all of them speed type very, very well. And they, they say to me, dad, you know, I, you've literally given me uh, time back because we spend so much time on keypads, right? And so just the micro little thing that you do that creates this huge impact down the road. So thank you for that insight. Um, what would you like to share with our listeners as we wrap up? Well, uh, just a, a, a point about what you mentioned. It's think of it as a magnifying glass. A lot of people are just constantly, we live in a world of attention fragmentation and it's hard to tweak and optimize and, 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 and master something or complete something perfectly or in a masterful way. Um, think of having like 10 pieces of uh, 10 papers in front of you uh, and you have a magnifying glass and you're just constantly, the sun's behind you, and you're just constantly moving from one to another. The reason why none of them are burning is because you're not spending enough time on one. 
to allow it to burn. Just keep the magnifying glass on one item until it burns, and then you can move on to the next and complete them. So um, just think of a magnifying glass in terms of precision. Um, yeah, it's, it's really about reclaiming choice to reclaim control, and you can only get that through awareness. And that's, that's the whole thing. The moment you start becoming aware, you begin to reclaim choice, to reclaim control over your life, to feel safe, to be able to achieve everything that you want. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Just, just a delightful conversation. Uh, I don't know if you do um, meditation voice, but you probably should with that uh, silky voice of yours. Um, that's very, that's really very kind. Thank you. Um, I've, I've, I've thank you. Thank you. Uh, it is an absolute, it was an absolute pleasure and an absolute honor and privilege um, to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, amazing. So um, as you've listened to this, I'm going to really invite you to go back and re-listen to it and have a pen and paper ready. Um, probably not a time to listen to this jogging or in the car but really listen to, um, there are some beautiful nuances and distinctions in this conversation that I think you should um, and may want to pay attention to. And as well, take some of the practices that Sam left you with and play with them and see if you can break through and break down some of those. Uh, we've all had traumas. We've all had emotional letdowns. It doesn't matter. Even if you grew up in a beautiful household, there's expectations. So um, if you like this episode or any of the other episodes of Rock Money Rock Your Life, and of course, subscribe and write us a review. And uh, this one should get a 2 million star review. Thank you very much, Sam, for being with us today. Thank you. So that's it for today's episode of Rock Your Money, Rock Your Life. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. Then head on over to rockyourmoneyrockyourlife.com and pick up a copy of Rock's free gift so you too can reach your financial potential, enjoy extraordinary success, and live the life you've imagined. Join us on the next episode.